This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. To get automatic updates every Thursday, make sure to subscribe. Now, if you're listening in March 2023, you've joined us during Women's History Month. Women's history has often been lost to the ages, obscured or just unexplored. But there are numerous examples of women from the past who've played a pivotal role in shaping England and who are linked to sites that are now in the care of English heritage. With us now to discuss some of these stories are Senior Properties Historian for English Heritage, Dr Amy Boyington. Hello. And British Art Historian, Dr Yanina Ramirez. Hello, pleasure to be with you. Well, let's get into this subject then of Women's History Month. Amy, first, how important is it that the study of the past has this greater emphasis placed on women? Well, obviously, I'm going to say it's really, really important to explore women's stories and history because, well, for centuries, history has generally been told through the achievements of men. Men's achievements took place in a sexist society in which women had fewer rights and fewer opportunities. But although women faced great restrictions, such as a reduced access to education or fewer opportunities in the workplace, they still achieved great things. And this is why it's so important to delve deeper into the archives to unearth their amazing stories. And then we will be able to see that women were actually incredibly vocal and active throughout history. Even within the restrictive times in which they lived, they were still able to make their mark on the world. So it's incredibly important to highlight women's history because it can then offer us a far more balanced insight into the past. Presumably you'd agree with that as well, Yanina. What else would you would you add? I would agree wholeheartedly with Amy's excellent response there. I've just written a book called Feminar, A New History of the Middle Ages Through the Women Written Out of It, for precisely this reason. Because as Amy said, women have always been there. We've always been half, if not slightly more than half of the world's population. And just because the history books and the stories don't show that doesn't mean that women can't be found. And I think that the climate is right for the first time to rediscover women of the past. In particular, I look, I look for medieval women because really the reason that we're not in the texts, the reason that women's stories aren't recorded so much in books is that as you go after the Reformation through the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century, each of those centuries have their own agendas, their own people in power. And what we tend to see, you know, with the rise of colonialism and imperialism is power in the hands of a few who are usually white rich men, (laughs) then everybody else held in their place lower down sort of social spectrum. Texts are copied, preserved that support that status quo. But what I've discovered going back to the medieval period is actually a remarkable amount of women that had agency. And because we now have developments in archaeology, DNA analysis, technology and databases are doing wonderful things, we can find women again. And they are appearing thick and fast and their stories are fascinating. And just as Amy said, by finding them and discovering them, we're finding a whole different way of looking to the past where it's more about the many and not just about the few. Talking about how you get into women's history, how you delve into the past, the archives, whatever evidence there is, how has that women's history been told 
in the past. We're, we're, I think, maybe telling it slightly differently today. Has the account of women's history in the past been different? I think it certainly has. As I've discovered in my research, there's multiple ways in which women's histories, women's stories have been lost. Sometimes it's purely because their stories just aren't of interest to the next generation that are preserving them. So they're sort of ignored. They're not seen as relevant. Sometimes they're deliberately written out. And that might have come in more recent centuries, or it might actually be contemporaneous. I mean, in the case of Athelflaed, Lady of the Mercians, it was her brother, Edward, who had her name sort of removed from the chronicles because she was seen as a power threat to his position. So there's many, many different ways in which the histories have been told across time. Some individuals like Christine de Pizan or Hildegard of Bingham, their histories have never been lost, but they've been told differently depending on who's telling them and why. So you know, she's been remembered as a great musician, but she hasn't really been appreciated for her, her major contributions in terms of theology and philosophy. So things change and different individuals come in and out of focus. But now I think we're looking, certainly the work I'm trying to do and and others around me are trying to do, is to find these sort of rounded individuals. Can we really discover fully rounded people from the past? Hmm. What do you think, Amy? Well, yes, um, of course, I completely agree with that. I think from my research, um, I love looking at sort of women and architecture and what they built during the 18th century uh, as an example. And I've noticed that because women um, were assumed really by later generations of historians not to have built anything in the 18th century, that was the assumption that just continued on. But when I went to the archives and by looking maybe at correspondence rather than sort of accounts, it becomes quite apparent that women were deeply engaged in building and were hugely interested in architecture. But it takes a little bit more dedication and time in unearthing those stories. Stories. Absolutely. And, and what you said there about correspondence, I think this is the difference. We're looking for voices. We're not just looking for a headline or a date or a place. We're trying to flesh out these people because yeah, I keep reminding my students that the people of the past were just like us. They were as complex, as difficult, as brilliant as we are. They just came before us. We're not superior beings. And they had interesting lives and sometimes things like correspondence, diary entries, personal accounts that they've written in their own voices get us closer to them. Just something that you said a a second ago, Yanina, you said that there was um, a lady from history who was written out of the history by, was it the husband or the relative? The brother, Athelflaed, Lady of the Mercians, yeah. Has there ever been any evidence of a woman writing out of history another woman? (laughs) No, (laughs) not that I've come across. (laughs) I mean, if anything, what you have in women's texts that do survive, remarkable survivals like Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love or Marjorie Kemp's book, are women writing about other women, writing women into the story. But I don't think it's so binary. I don't think it's just about men and women in the past. I think it's about It's more about haves and have-nots and those in power and those who aren't. And actually, what I've been surprised to find is how many male scribes 
are constantly writing about the women around them that fascinate them, the, the women they see doing extraordinary things. So we've inherited this idea that women have always been the second sex. They've always been pushed down and oppressed. But, you know, as Amy was saying at the beginning, no, there have also been times where women have carved spaces out for themselves and achieved extraordinary things, rivaling their male contemporaries. Bearing all that in mind then, how, how is women's history told today? Do we look at it through a particular lens, for example? Who wants to go first? Amy. So today, historians are, I think, they're much better at taking a more nuanced perspective. Women's role within history, I think, is considered in a much broader context than it used to be. Because in the past, I think women's achievements are really judged within the domestic sphere. Like, were they good mothers? Were they good wives? How did they support their husbands achieve great things? But now, by you know, we're sort of looking more specifically at them and their voices. And as a result, we're able to actually tell a far more interesting history of the past by looking at all sides, you know, women's perspectives, men's perspectives. And I think as a result, that means that we've got a much more valuable idea of the past. Is history more nuanced now uh, when told through the female perspective, Yanina? I really agree. Yes. I think important things have happened. I mean, not only have we had a global pandemic, but big movements like Me Too, Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ plus issues, these have all drawn to kind of public attention, the importance of including different perspectives, different voices, different ways of thinking and looking and searching through the past. And those have had a profound effect. And Amy said something so key there, which was, you know, when, when I was researching my book, I was I was reading a lot of works that have been lots of works being done on medieval women. But in almost every book, the chapter headings are things like mother, wife, aunt, sister. You might have a little section on nuns and then others. Whereas I very deliberately picked words that were ambiguous. So the titles of the chapters are things like spies and outlaws, polymaths, scientists, artists, patrons, because women are fulfilling all of those roles. And that is what I think the key change is here. We're starting to see that the line that we've been fed that the, the women's place is in the home, the domestic sphere, that is simply not the case. There were women across time who have really made a mark in both the private and the public spheres. It's interesting that you said um, there, Yanina, about these excluded groups who are popping up through modern events, really. So, Amy, what, what can we learn about these other excluded groups in the present by looking for women's stories from the past? Well, yeah, just as Nina just said there, you know, by sort of delving deeper and looking a little bit more closely at archives or taking the time to discover more, we are sort of moving past the most obvious history. So, you know, the white history or the wealthy person's history. We're looking beyond that to look at, you know, members from ethnic minorities and those from the LGBTQ community. And I think that's so important because it's more difficult to find these stories, but they're just as important as everything else. And from looking at them, we can really gain a richer, more complex understanding of past societies and cultures, not just in this country, but, you know, across the world. Yeah, I think it's so important. I know that, you know, there's there's sort of three major themes that we're hitting up against in politics and in, in, in sort of 
world events at the moment. One of them is the environment. One of them is the rise in sort of binary politics. And the other one is identity. People are trying to understand the complexities of identity, be that through sexuality, through race, through gender, through class, background. We're having these discussions now. And of course, the historian is a a mouthpiece for the time in which they write as much as they're a mouthpiece for the past. But it's thrilling to see the discipline changing to reflect broader changes and create a a different way of looking at the past. I, I mean, I was put off from doing history at school because I really did feel it was dates. It was great men from the past doing things that didn't they didn't impact me. They didn't affect me. I, I wasn't. I wasn't emotionally touched by them. But in fact, the way that these peripheral areas of, of history, the things that used to be sort of done in a final week in the last semester, women's history, local history, genealogy, these sorts of things that are pushed to the edges, they're coming into the main frame of what it is to do the subject now, and I think that's exciting. Yes, it feels like progress has been made in that way, in the, in the way that we record events from the past now and cast new light onto them where they might have been sort of obscured or forgotten about previously. So I think that's a a good thing. Yeah. And and it gives people a chance to not feel excluded from looking backwards because I think it's been very hard to find ourselves. I mean, I've I really struggled to find myself as a sort of woman of immigrant stock trying to kind of think, where am I in in these history books? Where am I in these stories? So, you know, I turned to literature, to art, to music, to those other areas where, you know, creative individuality seemed to be much more embraced. But actually now history is again becoming the mother subject. All subjects have their own histories and understanding them helps us to understand the world around us. And so that's, that's why I think it's, it's a great time to be studying history, to be engaging with it. I think it's also fair to say that uh, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation had it not been for some of the societal progressions that have taken place in recent decades mm-hmm. regarding particularly women's rights. And um, that's how I suppose we're able to have this conversation and focus on viewing women's history in different ways. We've discussed, of course, how the way women's stories have been told has changed through time. How do their experiences compare? Amy, do you want to go? I just have an interesting quote to actually start this off because through my research into the 18th century, I came across this really sort of classic quote by a 1963 male historian. Uh, He's quite respected at the time called Gordon Mingay. And he wrote about elite 18th century women during that century. And he basically said that, this is a quote, that they made no discernible impression on the character of the times. And I think that's just so classic of this idea from the past that he sort of inherited this idea and he didn't really challenge it. He just assumed that they were, you know, mothers, sisters, wives, etc. But he went on and he he even, he he went on and it went in a worse way. He said, They were indispensable, yet insignificant. They played out unobtrusively their vital role in the life of the ruling class. And I just thought, you know, when I read that during my PhD research, I just had to put it in my thesis because it's it's amazing. And I'm just so pleased that we can now say that we, this is an outdated opinion. It is laughable now. But at the time, throughout the 20th century, it was very true. And that made it harder for girls and women to see how are they going to achieve things in the modern day when this is how the past achievements of women has been classed? So I just, yeah, I find that fascinating. 
Absolutely. What a quote. Oh I my know. goodness. I get a similar kind of feeling of dread when I read things by Thomas Carlyle oh. on great men. And this idea that, you know, we're still in the thrall of the great man, you know, you mm. see it playing out on the world stage. And I think that this is why it's so important to have these conversations. And really, if we can see as women that we've always been there, we've always been empowered, these opinions that have been transmitted down through time, they are outdated, but they have always been an anomaly. You know, there would have been women at the time of the quote that you're reading there, Amy, who would have been up in arms about that, that opinion. So, so, you know, this is, it's a way to empower ourselves going forward to see the past differently. But I, you know, you were saying there, uh, um, about this idea of women's rights and suffrage, how hugely significant it is. This was sort of the real eureka moment when I was writing my book was when my daughter had come back, she's, she's 11, and she'd come back from school and they were doing the suffragettes. She very rightly said to me, isn't it wonderful, mummy? Isn't it wonderful that 100 years ago, these women fought for our rights. They fought for us to have a vote, to have a voice. And, you know, we're still fighting now, but didn't they change the tide? And I was delighted to hear her reading that. But at the time, I'd been reading about Emily Wilding Davidson. She's the suffragette who died when she was trying to tie a banner to the King's horse in the 1913 Derby. Loads of books have been written about Emily and her militant suffrage, the way that she, you know, she was quite um, active. She went on starvation in prison. She used to set fire to letterboxes. She she was very um, known as one of the more, more militant suffragettes. But... One thing that was sort of a footnote on a footnote was that Emily was a medievalist and she had gone to Oxford. She had completed the equivalent of a degree in English literature, but she couldn't graduate at that time. And she went on to write hundreds of articles and and stories based on medieval literature. And in these, it's coming through again and again, the argument that women have had their rights taken away from them. We used to have agency. We used to have a voice. We used to be listened to. And coming into the 20th century, why don't we have those anymore? And that sort of put things in a completely different perspective to me because, of course, they're not fighting in a vacuum. They're fighting for something that they feel that they should have. And the posters, the statues that the suffragettes would rally around was Joan of Arc, the medieval warrior woman. So it's seeing these cycles in history and seeing that we've been written out, but we, we've always been there. I do think it's, it's time to do things a bit differently. That's really interesting. That uh, So you say that effectively these rights were taken away, presumably by men, and then they've been reinstated after <laughs> a, a long period of time. Yeah, the book was, I mean, the, you know, I've been a medievalist for decades, but when I was writing this book, I was shocked, you know, chapter upon chapter by how much agency has been removed. Partly because, actually, another big moment was when I discovered the phrase, a woman's place is in the home, was coined by Martin Luther. And it was the Reformation that closed down these convents, these um, sort of bubbling grounds that were the universities, the hospitals, the art centers of the medieval world, where women could thrive and be intellectual, brilliant individuals. So, yeah, I mean, Emily Wilding Davidson, she looked back particularly to the time of Chaucer. That's why she called herself Fair Emily after his character. And she saw a world that was better than the one she was living in. <laughs> and, and that's not a story that's often told. Wow. That's, that, it's a surprise to me, I must say. Yeah. Um, it was a surprise to me even. <laughs> yeah. Well, OK, well, let's um, look at some of the English heritage sites that sort of tie in with our conversation then and some of the women who are linked to those sites. We'll begin first with 
St Hild of Whitby in North Yorkshire. Yes, um, one of my absolute heroines. Yeah. Why is she a key figure, not just for you personally, Yanina, but um, for history generally in England? Well, I think anybody who's visited Whitby Abbey, amazing English heritage site, just that location. I mean, it's no wonder it became the site for Dracula. It's got this sort of gothic splendour about it with the medieval ruins up on the cliff face. But in fact, the ruins that you see are later. They're on top of a double monastery that was set up by this woman, Hilda, Hilda of Whitby. Her name, Hild, in Old English means battle, battler. What is so amazing about her for me is she lives at this pivotal moment. You know, we talk about how 1066 is so significant because it's an invasion of England that the Normans come and they conquer and they stay. But there were other different types of invasions. And one of them was an ideological one. And that was when Christianity was brought over at the end of the 6th century. Now, even the way that story has been told is conditioned by sort of male narratives. The traditional narrative is that in 597, St. Augustine is sent by Pope Gregory from Rome to bring Christianity to the pagan Anglo-Saxons. But in fact, there's two other ways it was arriving. Firstly, from Ireland across the north with St. Columba over to Lindisfarne. And secondly, decades before St. Augustine, a woman, Bertha of Kent, married Athelbert of, of Kent. She came over from Francia and she brought her Christian bishop and the practice of Christianity with her. So once we start to look for the women in this story, they become key players. It becomes clear that after Bertha, it's her daughters that are spreading Christianity through the pagan Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. It's her grandchildren that go on to be the first people in the North that are baptised. And among this first wave of noble women that are getting on board with this exciting new opportunity that they see in Christianity is Hilda. She spends the first half of her life, the first 30 odd years of her life as a princess, as a noblewoman in this military court. Anglo-Saxon culture was a, a military elite. And while women had some agency there, they, they were secondary to strong men. But in, you know, during her lifetime, this new option turns up, Christianity. And one of the major USPs of this religion is apparently everybody is equal in the body of the faithful. Everybody is saved. Everybody is, is classed similarly. So women and poor people and people who aren't privileged have gravitated towards it as a way of empowering themselves. And Hilda gets on board. She sets up this incredible place with men and women studying under her as abbess. And the finds from Whitby show that it was palatial. You know, there's decorated hairpins and writing equipment and stone carvings. This was, this was a place bursting with wealth and creativity. This isn't our modern notion of a convent where everything's quiet and peaceful and restrained. This is, this is a palace and a palace of learning. And she gets to the heights of the church whereby she actually presides over one of the most important synods in English history, the Synod of Whitby in 664. So she carves out a space for herself that is just, it's, it's unrivaled. Even now we're still sort of celebrating the rise of women through the Church of England that we're allowed to have women bishops. Well, Hilda was doing it back in the seventh century. She was sort of at yeah, top of her game. This key event is the, as you've described, the Synod of Whitby. Can you just briefly describe what that is for people who haven't caught that episode? Yeah. So uh, synods take place throughout the, the church calendar. They're important events where all the major bishops, archbishops come together to decide 
on a matter that is of direct importance to the church at that time. And in 664, the real issue was which way are we going to turn in terms of our monasteries? Are we going to follow the Roman pattern and have Benedictine monasteries where you have this uniformity, everyone is acting to the same hours, behaving the same way? It's quite a, a sort of almost army of monks, you know, the Benedictine order. Or are we going to go with this much more esoteric, organically formed version of Irish monasticism, which is Irish monks, Celtic monks would, would move through the landscape. They had a different relationship with the natural world. They were slightly more disordered. One of the things people say it comes down to is haircuts because the Benedictines had the donut tonsure and the Irish monks had the sort of long hair at the back kind of mullet look going on. But that's just an outward expression of something that was much more intrinsic, that the church was split some of the members of some of the members of the English royal houses were celebrating Easter one day, others were doing it another day. There was a lack of harmony, and so that's what Hilda was presiding over. And she brought these strong characters together, kept order, and a decision was reached. They decided to go with the Romans, and it left us with the dates of Easter that we have today. Indeed, indeed, the legacy is still with us today. Yeah, or, or the the varied dates, because um, obviously it changes all the time. <laughs> yes. Um, well, as we move forward through time, after 1066 and the Norman Conquest, who else can we shine a light on from this period? Again, there are so many events that we see as pivotal as in our dates, in terms of dates in, in, in English history. But possibly the one that we're told most often is 1066. Yeah, we should all know about 1066. The Battle of Hastings, William the Conqueror, Harold, the two Harolds, and a big set of battles. But what I was thinking is, if I take the frame and put it on women in 1066, will I find something different? Because, you know, multiple volumes have been written on this, this subject. And my lens going in was the Bayeux Tapestry, because I'm an art historian. And one of the things I find so strange about this object is it's so rarely examined as an artwork. It tends to be seen as a sort of additional text. You know, people will will read the Norman texts, the English texts and the Bayeux Tapestry all together to try and come up with a solution to what was happening during these events. But when I looked at it as an artwork, it is the most astonishing piece of work. I don't know if you've ever seen it. If you're unable to get over to Bayeux, do go to Reading Museum because there is a full-scale Victorian replica of the Bayeux Tapestry and it is just so brilliant, wonderful to spend time with. And when you walk around it, it's huge. And it's like watching a film. It's like watching a reel of film playing out in front of you. When you see the ships sailing, you know, they're, they're, they're dynamic. The, in the battle scenes, the horses are rolling out of the frame. You know, they're flipping backwards. So I see it as a spectacular achievement by the artists that made it. And when we ask who are the artists, they were women. It was women that were renowned for embroidery, particularly English women at this point. So I, I started to think of it more as a mistress piece than a master, masterpiece. And then I started to look at the women that are actually depicted in it. And if anything, they're visible by their absence. There's only three. And each of those women show us different aspects of what it was like to be alive during these events. In one scene, there's a woman running away from a burning building, pulling a child behind her. And she represents the victims of war. You know, this is warfare. Their lands have been invaded, their buildings have been burnt down, and the women and children are, are fleeing. But then you see these other curious scenes, the, the famous Algifu scene where a nun, it seems she seems to be a nun, a veiled woman, 
is enclosed in a building and this cleric, this priest is poking through into her space, trying to touch her. And in the margin below, there's an image of a, na- who's, of a naked man mirroring that action. So what's going on here? Is it a scandal? Is it something that just hasn't been recorded? We don't know who this Algifu is. I like to think of it as anybody looking at that at the time, they would know who it was. They had the equivalent of OK Magazine 1066 <laughs> that would have given them the gossip, the inside information. But we will never know completely. But what it does show is the sort of violation of a woman's space by a man. And then you have Queen Edith, the individual shown at the end of the deathbed of Edward the Confessor, that's his wife. And in fact, the more I looked into the Bayeux Tapestry, the more I think she played a pivotal role in it. And when you start to look into her, she was a power player. She lost all her brothers. She was part of the powerful Godwin family. And when all of them are dead, they're seen as as a threat. She manages to hold her power. She manages to hold her lands and her authority when William the Conqueror arrives. So really thinking about it differently just helped show me the period in a different light. You also wanted to talk about um, St. Augustine's Abbey. How does this feature in in this period in in women's history? Yes. Well, this is, again, something uh, intriguing because the Bayeux Tapestry shouldn't really be called the Bayeux Tapestry. Firstly, it's not a tapestry. It's an embroidery. And secondly, it may indeed have been made to hang in the cathedral in Bayeux that was built by Odo of Bayeux, but it was made in Canterbury, in and around Canterbury. It's most likely that the sort of brains, the library, they went through to get the images to inspire what went into the Bayer Tapestry. They belonged to the Abbey of of St. Augustine's. And it was through collaboration with nearby female convents that the designers, if you like, who were the monks at St. Augustine, and then the actual artists, the, the nuns, they worked closely to create this. So maybe we should be thinking about calling it the St. Augustine's Embroidery. <laughs> well, that would uh, revise the history books, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> We've um, previously covered Eleanor de Montfort, another important female figure from history. That was episode 101 for anyone who's interested. What makes her an important figure for her time? Well, I'm fascinated by Eleanor because she is one of many women I've discovered in the medieval period who actually really played the role of kind of military leaders. I found it in the Viking world in particular, you know, with the discovery of the Burka warrior woman that we, we find women buried with weapons that they physically fought. I mentioned Athelflaed, Lady of the Mercy, and she was known as a brilliant military mind and strategist. But with Eleanor, it's quite remarkable. She's involved in this civil war, this uprising where her brother, the king, is imprisoned and her husband becomes sort of de facto ruler. And then she becomes the strategist out of her uh, first Odeon and then Dover Castle, she creates these power hubs where she's coordinating spy missions, she's coordinating armies, the supply of weapons, big siege weapons too. She is living through war and it's that old adage, you know, when pressed, anyone can do anything. Whether it's a woman or a man, if you're in a war situation, if your lives or your children's lives are in danger, you will fight. And that's what these women prove. But what's also amazing about Eleanor is is the um, records survive from her time. So we also get, like Amy was saying right at the beginning, these intimate insights into the sorts of gifts that she gave, like a gold brooch to somebody's son. Like the way that they eat, they all eat together in the hall. This sort of idea of her real life alongside the headlines of what she achieved. 
So, so I think she shines a light on this very active role that women could play within, within the public sphere. She finishes uh, her life uh, leaving the country, having negotiated a sort of exit, as I seem yeah. to remember, and, and, and goes off to France. Yeah, to become a nun. Yeah. And um, again, what a negotiator. She's just incredible. And I saw this again with the Bayeux Tapestry women, with, with Emma of Normandy and with Edith. I think the, the word that binds these women together is resilience. They have this resilience. They just keep on finding loopholes, ways through, means of having their voices heard, of, of surviving, of prospering. And yeah, she, she, she ends up comfortably off in France, living her life out as a nun. Yes, and I think, does she reconvene with some of her children yeah, as well? Yeah. Yes, I think she does, yeah, yeah. Even though they're all kind of, they're serious persona non grata at this point. They've risen up against the royal family. So yes, it's, it, it's fascinating to chart the historical events through their lives rather than necessarily through the men that were beside them. Yes, and really interesting to look at how people were sort of behaving towards one another before sort of off with your head became popular. Um, So I think that's really interesting. So worthwhile having a listen to that episode for Eleanor de Montfort, episode 101. Moving into the 15th century, there are a group of women known as female mystics. Now, this is something that we haven't actually covered on the English Heritage podcast yet. So what can you tell us about those women, Yanina? Well, do you know, they were the reason I fell in love with studying the medieval period. I was studying literature and the text, usually uh, when I was reading medieval texts, I knew that women were involved in the writing of them. But it wasn't until I encountered a particularly Julian of Norwich that I saw the real potential for women to, to reach their intellectual heights in the realm of mysticism. What Amy said near the beginning was really interesting because she said that because women have had limited access to education, that has made it more difficult for them to write their thoughts down to be heard. And that is certainly the case in the medieval period too. They weren't allowed to attend theological schools to get theological training. So they didn't have the sort of rhetorical devices that the male writers had. But in a way, it freed them up to engage with religious and spiritual matters in a different way. And they do that through this personal experience, a mystical experience. It all really starts out, I mean, there's been mystics as as long as there's been Christianity. And indeed, mysticism is, is a theme that runs through all world religions. But with Hildegard of Bingen, we see the rise of the superstar mystic. She is the most incredible human being. I like to describe her as Leonardo da Vinci before Leonardo da Vinci and better than Leonardo da Vinci because she finished her projects. Uh, <laughs> she lived in the 12th century in the Rhineland and she was this remarkable polymath, a scientist, a musician, an artist, playwright and a theologian. And she says she is experiencing visions. Now, what we've later discovered is she was probably experiencing migraines the way that her images look, the way she describes them, they all have this sort of scotoma and this, this sort of aura. But she took these visions and she used them as a way to be heard. And she caught the ear, not just of, of male and female scribes around her, but of the Pope, the Holy Roman Emperor, the kings and queens of Europe. She becomes a prophetess, if you like, advising them on, on politics, on warfare. So she uses her mysticism to empower herself. And she sets a trend. And then through the 13th and 14th century, there is an explosion of female mystics. And it's not 
just nuns. It's not just women living in religious orders. It's lay women. So you know, you've got Bridget of Sweden, who has nine children, Marjorie of Kemp, who has 14 children. They later in life think, you know what, I want to be recognized as a mystic. I'm going to write a mystical text and I'm going to be a celebrity. You know, I'm going to travel the world and live a celebrity lifestyle. So it's a fascinating way to see women, again, carving out a space that potentially gives them freedom, gives them an ability to be heard. Do these female mystics develop into the witches of later centuries? I mean, absolutely. It's not just mystics, but it's right up until the Reformation, you've got wise women who are being consulted on everything you know Julian is an anchor anchoress she's she's walled up in a single room for 30 years of her life but but people visit her you know princes and everyone from princes to prostitutes are visiting her and asking for her advice so there's always been wise women within communities you know when I'm studying pre-Christian societies Anglo-Saxon England Viking Scandinavia Women took on all those roles of, in religion, in, in terms of politics, everything. And what happens with the witchcraft trials is that those women are slowly but surely silenced and made afraid of their sex in a way that they hadn't been before to quite the same extent. OK, well, let's move on to another character from the past, which is Lady Blanche Arundel. This is a lady that uh, Amy would like to talk about. Lady Blanche is associated with Warder Castle near Salisbury in Wiltshire. Why is Lady Blanche's story important, Amy? Well, I think that she has a really amazing story because I think ordinarily if she hadn't if she hadn't lived through the English Civil War, I doubt we really would have known about her. And that's why it's so interesting that she was born when she was born. So she was born in 1583 or 84, we don't quite know the exact date. And she was the daughter of the fourth Earl of Worcester and his wife, Lady Elizabeth Hastings. And she grew up in Wales at Raglan Castle. And then in 1607, she married Thomas Arundel, who was later the second Baron Arundel. And they lived at Wardour Castle in Wiltshire. And so during the English Civil War, Blanche and her husband were staunch supporters of the royalist cause. So they supported Charles I. And whilst her husband was away fighting in the army of Charles I, Lady Blanche defended Wardour Castle against a besieging parliamentarian army. And this is why we know about her. So this amazing event, or I should say terrifying event, took place between the 2nd and 8th of May, 1643. And together with her daughter-in-law, grandchildren, several maidservants, and about 25 men, Blanche defended her home against an army that was reported to be about 1,000 parliamentarians, maybe 1,300, that kind of number. And so she's considered so heroic because although she was later forced to surrender, her heroism was widely reported by the royalist cause. Her story was seen as great propaganda for the royalist side. And this is partly why we know about her name and why we know about her story. Because although her story, I suppose, is slightly unusual in that she is seen to be sort of taking on this military masculine role, it was because she was acting, you know, in her husband's name, defending this castle that we now know about her. But 
actually many women on both sides of this conflict played important roles during the Civil War, whether they were actually in combat, whether they were defending their homes like Lady Blanche, or even as spies. But because time has moved on and their stories weren't necessarily written down like Lady Blanche's, theirs has been forgotten. And that's why I believe that Lady Blanche's story is so important. Do we have detail about Lady Blanche Arundel's story? Do we know whether she made weapons or... (laughs) I think it was mainly improvising. She had to do... She had to use what she had at the time to sort of hold out as long as she could. And she had these 25 sort of men-at-arms, which she ordered around to try and, you know, hold out as long as possible. But then the parliamentarians, there were so many of them, and also like they started to um, tunnel underneath, and it, she knew that it wasn't going to end well for her. So she had to surrender in the end. But I think she was excellent at improvising and, you know, actually standing up to them because the commander of the parliamentarian army assumed that because it was being defended by a woman it would immediately fall to him and she was really defiant and that's partly why we know about her story today. How does her story end then? Favourably? Yes well unfortunately she does surrender and she surrenders and then she's not killed but her husband dies in battle And so she doesn't actually see him again, which is quite tragic, really, whilst she and her household are taken into sort of custody. And although she's later released, you know, her story sort of becomes more obscure then because she sort of melts away because the castle is taken over by the parliamentarian army. I think they get it back, but she has to live on an income of one fifth of the original income of the house because it's taken over by Cromwell's army. And so... Her story is known, but only up until that point. And then sadly, but surely it sort of falls off the cliff in a way. Yeah, ebbs away because the, the most interesting, interesting point the was, yeah, was, the, was the defensive peak, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, that's just an example, I suppose, isn't it, of, yeah. of history being uh, written in a certain way and then the rest of it sort of being forgotten because it didn't really serve a purpose at the time. Yeah, exactly. At a similar time as Lady Blanche Arundel, we have Margaret Cavendish, Duchess of Newcastle, making history of her own. She's associated with Bolsover Castle in Derbyshire in northern England. What's her life story that makes her appealing as this female figure from history? Well, I love Margaret Cavendish because she's gone down in history as being known as Mad Madge, a sort of an eccentric woman who didn't fit the mould of the time. But once again, I think this label has resulted in the obscuring of her, her story and her achievements. And I just find her so fascinating. So her story is basically this. She was born near Colchester in 1623, and she was the daughter of wealthy parents. And she had a rather sort of basic education where she was taught to read and write. But like many girls of the time, the emphasis was placed on music, needlework and dancing, sort of the accomplishments that would make her a good wife or an appealing partner. And then by the age of sort of 19, she became a maid of honour to Queen Henrietta Maria, so Charles I's wife. And in 1644, during the English Civil War, Margaret travelled with the Queen over to France. And this is where she met her husband, William Cavendish, the future Duke of Newcastle. He'd already been married, he was now widowed, and he was about 30 years older than Margaret, 
it's not unusual, but it was an unusual match. And people actually said, are you serious? Is this a good one for you? But it, it seemed to be a sort of a real meeting of minds. He was a poet and a patron and she was fiercely intelligent and ambitious. And so it seemed to work. Like he didn't feel threatened by her intellect or by her ambition. And I think that's why we hear about her today. But during the time in which she lived, Margaret was sort of known for being eccentric. She sort of had a, an outlandish dress sense, apparently. And she sort of was very flirtatious and, and loud. I think she was a loud woman. And in a time where women were supposed to be, you know, dutiful mothers and dutiful wives, she really pushed those boundaries to sort of stand out in a way. And it's also said that maybe her, her speech was packed with, quote, oaths and obscenity. So she really wasn't being a feminine woman, which was looked down upon. And in fact, Samuel Pepys, he actually described her as mad, conceited and ridiculous. So even at the time, she was considered, you know, not to be the perfect woman. But despite all of this, Margaret was a prolific writer, and this is why we know so much about her today. She is probably one of the most sort of published authors or female authors of the 17th century. And she wrote about almost everything. She wrote about issues sort of about sex and gender, women's rights, marriage, and she was also into natural philosophy. And she wrote many texts on this. And this was considered to be a male intellectual pursuit, not necessarily for women. And yet, she was the first woman to be invited to visit the Royal Society in London. So she really was pushing those boundaries and stepping her toe into the male-dominated sphere. But her most famous work was published in 1666, and it was called The Blazing World. And it was a groundbreaking science fiction novel. And it told the story of a young woman's journey into a new world. And it's a fantastical, satirical, utopian, woman-centric novel, which apparently was kind of insane at the time, but it's stood the test of time. And it still exists today? Yes, can you yeah, read a you copy? Can read it online. Yep. It's very it is fantastical and it is it was pioneering. Like we don't really have many science fiction novels from this period. And the fact that she wrote it from a female perspective is fascinating. And so this is why she is amazing, because she has gone down as being mad madge because people couldn't really figure out where to place her. And so because she wasn't fitting the female mould, well, she has to be mad. And this is why, you know, she's got this, she's still dubbed as Mad Madge, which is crazy, but she was ambitious, intelligent and confident. And I think that's why mainly male commentators, both from the time and later on, try to ruin her reputation and label her as mad. Maybe expressive is a better word. <laughs> yeah, I think just exuberant and full of life. I think she was just intelligent. She had things to say, which were intelligent and people didn't necessarily like that. Definitely non-deferential. Um, <laughs> exactly. But um, in terms of this expressiveness, wasn't she quite big into fashion? Didn't they have big parties at Bolsover Castle, her yes. and her husband? Yeah, I think so. She was, I don't know why they describe her as outlandish. I think she just, she had this an exuberant way of life and she sort of wore dresses that weren't, I suppose, fashionable, according to other women, perhaps. And so as a result, she just got all these labels attached to her when really she was just, you know, living her life to the full. 
Well, if we move south down the map towards North London, we arrive at Kenwood. This was the home of Dido Bell. Why is her story significant? I suppose the first thing to say is that she looks different from the rest of the women that we've been talking about. Yes, exactly. So she was mixed race. She was the illegitimate daughter of Sir John Lindsay, who was an officer in the Royal Navy. And her mother was a young enslaved African woman named Maria Bell. And the reason why her story is so... um, Well, the reason why we know about her at all, really, is because she is depicted in a painting along with her cousin, Lady Elizabeth Murray. And this was painted in 1779, in which she is um, painted alongside her cousin in in equal sort of in an equal setting so she's not in a deferential sort of uh, servant role she is there as an equal and that's why her story I think is known today because it's a visual represent representation of the fact that you know uh, mixed race people and um, people from ethnic minorities were present and prevalent during the time so um The reason uh, why she's linked to Kenwood um, House is because her father took her to England in 1765 and he entrusted her upbringing to his uncle, who was William Murray, the first Earl of Mansfield. And basically, Mansfield educated Belle, bringing her up as a free gentlewoman at their Kenwood House, together with her other cousin, Lady Elizabeth Murray. And so although it wasn't unheard of for a powerful aristocrat to be the legal guardian to an illegitimate relation, it was extremely unusual at the time for a mixed race child who had been born to a former enslaved mother to be raised not as a servant, but as part of an aristocratic family. And that's why Dido's story is just so significant and so important, because it, you know, it sort of shines a light on the fact that people from ethnic minorities were very much living in London and in Britain at the time. And they weren't, you know, in these deferential roles. And I think it's such a, an inspiring story as a result. Do you think that she was treated in a modern way, in the way that we would sort of associate with? Or do you think that, um, I don't know, was she firmly within the family fold, do you think? Well, yeah. So we don't know her exact position within Lord Mansfield's household. It's it's unclear, but the evidence does suggest that she was brought up as a lady alongside her cousin. We know that she was taught to read, write, play music and was graceful and at ease in the presence of invited guests. So it wasn't as though she had to sort of hide away when other people visited the house, which was sometimes the case. She seems to have been treated fairly equally. She was given a small allowance, so she had some financial independence, which is you know hugely important at the time. And the fact that she was painted in that portrait or double portrait with her cousin, and that would have been hanging up in the house, shows that there was sort of no shame or weird feelings about her. She was celebrated and appreciated, and I think loved, which is, you know, amazing. I suppose if I'm playing devil's advocate as the, as the journalist asking the question here, mm-hmm. um, she is slightly behind in the frame, isn't she? Because Lady Elizabeth is, is sitting on a bench, as yes, I recall, and right. Dido is behind sort of, I don't know, yeah. almost there's a bit of movement. She's almost sort of going from right to left. And isn't she uh, holding uh, some fruit or something? Uh, yes, that's true. And she's also painted in sort of, she, I think she has a turban on or something like that. So she's being painted in an exotic light, which is, mm. I think we wouldn't do that today for, for sure, because it's definitely hinting at the fact that she is, 
oh, you know, sort of not from somewhere else. Yeah, she's from somewhere else, and mm. that you know, I wouldn't do that today. But um, at the time, you know, I suppose it could be said as a sort of a celebration of her sort of exoticism. But I don't, I wouldn't want to really say that. But you're right; she is standing behind. But it's as though she's sort of walking past her cousin. So yeah, I'm not sure. It's it's a difficult one. I mean. Yanina, what do you think? You're an art historian. Have you got anything to say about this portrait? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm fascinated listening to all you have to say, and I'm certainly reading Margaret Cavendish's book tonight. So that's the next thing I'm doing. Um, yeah, that portrait is slightly problematic. I mean, it's there is a history in art of having non-white servants, if you like, there to prop up yeah. um, the individual. I mean... Manet very famously flips that around in in Olympia, but it's always as if the person is there as a prop, as a celebration of the individual family's wealth and international connections and the fact that they have access to an exotic world. But I think there's something slightly different about that portrait because of the sizes of the figures. They're shown of equal size. And there is a degree of interaction between them. It's not just one is in a in servitude to the other. So yeah, I think it's it's possibly more like you say that it's the fact that she's been shown in this dress in this exotic costume. We have to remember this was a time when costumes were prevalent. People loved to sort of explore themes and ideas through the through the way they dress. So it's possible that they are highlighting her exoticism in a way that, as you say, would, would, we wouldn't do today. But I think it's a, it's a slightly different and, and more intimate portrait. I hope I'm not giving people ideas here, but I think it's not completely equal. It feels no. quite ambiguous. It's They have an association mm. and uh, you can see it in their expressions, in their faces, that they sort of, that they know each other. Yeah. But um, it's not like they're both sitting on the bench side by side, looking at each other, giggling and... And it's certainly not the way you would formulate a family portrait. Family portraiture was... Yeah. Would, would, the arrangement of the figures would be different, yeah. But still, you know, as Amy said, to have this portrait painted and hung in the family home, these are recognisable people. Anybody looking at that portrait knows who they are. So mm. it is a celebration of these two women. Let's move on to another time period and to the beginning of the 20th century. We move into the suffragettes and votes for women. They made a significant contribution to not only English history, but also world history. And I suppose you could also say film history, because, of course, Votes for Women is that famous song and scene in Mary Poppins. Absolutely. It's surprising now when I'm touring the book around the world and I'm talking in Spain, in Germany, in the US about the suffragettes. And it's this sort of universally understood fact that these these women, particularly centred in and around around London at this time, made history that affected everybody. And of course, you know, it, it, you see a very close relationship between US and UK suffragettes. But what they were doing was so brave and so dangerous as well. I think we forget, you know, we like to think a little bit like the Mary Poppins <laughs> scene, that it's all sort of upper class women taking a step away from their busy households and part time going off and, and handing some leaflets around. But it was militant. When we think about the suffragettes in particular, rather than there's two two sort of pulls, one's trying to get changed through negotiation, through law, changing the law, through parliament. And the other is very active. It's deeds, not words. That's their motto, you know. 
And the stories of some of those early suffragettes, the things that they were doing, you have, it's a form of um, guerrilla warfare, really, letting off bombs and setting fire to buildings and doing dangerous things. But in this kind of thrust that had been building up from the 1800s onwards, really, this, this rising fever that was coming towards the end of the 19th century that women really needed to be heard. And society was unjust. And if you could allow women to have the vote, then that would open things up for everybody. And I believe one woman, didn't she sacrifice herself at a race, a horse racing event? Yes. So that's Emily Wilding Davidson, who is this surprising medievalist that I was talking about. And yeah, I mean, it's a very complicated story. Did she go to the Derby in 1913 knowing she was going to die? Was she martyring herself? There's many books written on it. She had a return ticket. People say that she wasn't necessarily intending to die. My theory is when she walked out, and the other thing that makes it so dramatic, of course, is it was caught on film because in 1913, they had there were three cameras trained all on Tattershall Corner, which is the place where she walked out. And it is so dramatic watching that, fo- that footage because you've got people heaving up against the white barrier at the side, the horses speeding past, and then you just see this figure dip under the barrier and very calmly walk out into the pathway of this horse. And it's not any horse, it's the king's horse. The king was at the races. It was his horse. And what I think she was doing was the medieval tradition of petitioning the king. It's written about in Chaucer, and I think this is where Emily got the idea. There's a a wonderful account of Aeneas returning back after his triumphs at war. And the Amazonian women throw themselves in front of his horse to beg for his support. And I think that's what she was trying to do. She was trying to pin the banner onto the horse. She gets knocked sideways and dies a few days later in hospital. But it is so telling of the time because on the one hand, while she's lying in hospital, she's receiving hate mail. People saying, you idiot, I, w- I wish you to hell. You are, how dare you do that? You stupid, you know, these wild suffragettes behaving in this unruly manner. And on the other hand, the suffragettes instantly realized they have a martyr to their cause. Their cause was actually losing momentum going into 1913. Laws were being thrown out of parliament. They weren't being listened to. So it was almost a desperate measure on her part to get attention. But when she was buried, her funeral was the single most attended non-royal funeral in English history. That's how much of an impact she made. And Lo and behold, change followed very quickly after that. The the cause was back in people's attention and the rest is history. That's an astonishing story, isn't it? Mm. She She was the change maker on that one. Yeah, and she gave her life in the process. But I think when you read her texts, she talks about the truest thing to do for your friends is to die for them. So I think she, you know, yes, whether she went meant to or not, her death did bring about huge change. And whether you like it or not, uh, whether you like the political leaders that we have or not, um, it just goes to show how important having a vote is. She set the example on that front. We see some blue plaques to some suffragettes in London as part of the English Heritage Blue Plaque Scheme, don't we, Amy? Yeah, we do. So there are a number of the English Heritage Blue Plaques dedicated to the women who fought for um, women's rights to vote. And of course, they include the Pankhurst sisters, Emmeline, Christabel and Sylvia. But you can actually go on a tour around London to visit the suffragette-related plaques. I think you can download a tour on your phone. 
And it takes you along the route. So you see the plaques honouring the Pancus in Notting Hill and Chelsea. And then also Millicent Garrett Fawcett in Bloomsbury. And then Eleanor Rathbone in Westminster. And also Nancy Astor in St. James's. So it would be, yeah, it's a great tour to go around and just sort of honour these women along the way. Aside from the blue plaques, how are women's stories being told at English heritage sites? So, well, in the past, generally at heritage sites, women's stories weren't actually told that well at all. But now, as you know, from this discussion, we can sort of say that we're having a greater effort or there's a greater effort to uncover their histories and convey their stories to the wider public. So at English Heritage, we're not just telling the stories of I suppose the wealthiest women, you know, the women who might have left a mark, but we're also trying to investigate the stories of women who perhaps once worked at the castles and country houses and other buildings in our care. And I think a really great example of this is at Audley End House, where the life and stories and recipes, I should say, of Mrs. Crocombe, the Victorian cook, are regularly being told. And she's just a fascinating character. She's sort of telling her stories on site but also if you can't get to all the end you can watch videos on youtube and tiktok where she's you know sort of telling us all about the recipe she used to make and she's proved to be a real hit which is fantastic and we've covered her a couple of times on the podcast so you can so you can go back into the archive and have a listen to those episodes Yes, it's a fascinating character from history. All thanks to the discovery of the recipe book, which yeah. was gifted to English Heritage by one of her descendants. Yeah, that's right. It's amazing. I love that. It's just such a great thing when history is sort of, you're always learning something new and you know, can bring new stories to light, which is so important. And I also think, you know, this element of discovery is what's so exciting about being historians and looking at the past. It's constantly happening now, whether it's archaeological discoveries or whether it's books that have been lost, like you've described, mm. and then suddenly come to light. It's, it constantly allows new lights to be shone. And talking about discovery and English heritage sites, one of the reasons I start my book with, I was up in Whitby with my children, and we were just walking through the English heritage site there. And one of the wonderful guides came running up. I, I'd done some work there previously. And she went, Nina, it's so lovely to see you again. How are you? What are you doing? And I said, oh, it's so lovely to see you. I'm writing a book about rediscovering medieval women. And she said, oh, well, you must have heard about our Loftus princess then. And I sort of thought, should I have? And I, I hadn't. And she said, yes, yes, just recently discovered. You must go just a few kilometers down the coast, go to Street House. This Anglo-Saxon princess has been discovered. Her incredible jewelry and her bed burial. She was buried in a bed, which I've already signed myself up for, a bed burial. <laughs> and, you know, you can tell this fascinating story about, about you know, 6th century, 7th century women. And my goodness, it sort of lit a touch paper and that was it. I wrote the chapter. But yeah, so I think that there's, it's not just English heritage trying to get these stories out through boards or banners or guidebooks. It's the people on the ground. It's the people talking and discussing these, these ideas with you as well. They can reveal so many new stories. It was a great moment. <laughs> Amazing. It's new information coming to light the whole time. It makes news out of history. Absolutely. As we begin to sort of round out our discussion, here's a question. Does history appreciate women's accomplishments more now? Bearing in mind that we've had all these advancements in voting and, and rights and roles in society. I would say, and I, I have a feeling Amy might agree with me, that yes, 
I think women's accomplishments are more appreciated now. I mean, we are still way off equality. It's going to take 106 years to close the gender pay gap. And there are more CEOs in the world named John than there are women CEOs. So that's sort of an indication of where we still are. But I certainly think that, you know, we've got women reaching the highest points in political spheres. We've got women in academic spheres writing that they're Again, you know, there's still still work to be done. But what I'd also say is I think we assume that women have always been silenced and pushed to the peripheries and really couldn't achieve anything until now. You know, with the dawning new age of iPhones and computers, suddenly we're allowed to have agency. I am finding women across time and just listening to the women Amy was talking about as well from more recent centuries, there's never been a time where women have been entirely pushed to the sidelines. Their evidence lies around us in the buildings that they have created, in the artworks they patronized, in in the texts and the ideas they leave behind. And so I think we assume they have never been appreciated and never been celebrated, but that's not always the case. Mm. And I would like to add that I think... Although there is sort of, you know, we have made great leaps forward, I think there's still this weird general assumption that women's history is sort of only interesting to women. Exactly, which, yeah. Which is crazy. So, you know, when I was t- trying to tell people about women in architecture, they're like, oh, that's nice and niche. But I'm like, no, it's not niche. It's for everybody. Surely everybody should appreciate this. And so I think only by continuing to research and like publishing and, you know, being vocal about women from the past will we change it for the better in the future but it's taking some time it is and I think that's the other thing maybe we're seeing a shift in perspective which is Mm. about certainly what I like to think of of what's happening is by putting the frame on this 50% who've been ignored it allows the others who've been ignored to be seen as well so it's not just women's history it's everybody's history we should all be behind it Mm -hmm. and it is taking a long time you are right Amy it is Mm. That's an important point that you make there, you know, this importance of perception and uh, shifting perspective to make it a more holistic history, mm. to make history a true humanity, the study of humanity of events from the past, exactly. not just certain segments of the human population. Well, we've been taught to think of it almost as an empirical subject, haven't we, with facts and dates and things you have to memorise in order to sit an exam. But it is a humanity subject. It is it is everything that has gone before. And that is the science of how computing has developed, how science has developed, how maths has developed, as well as how art, culture, music has, has developed. That's why I like to think of it as the mother subject. But it, it really needs a shake-up. It has needed a shake-up for a long time. And I think we're starting to see that now. I think they should rename it. History is out of date. Herstory is probably too feminist, if I can say that. <laughs> yeah. It needs to be called ustery. Ustery, I love that. Because it's the story of us. Yeah. And it doesn't, that us doesn't exclude anyone. I think that's brilliant. I think I'll start using that. Thank you. You've given me a new uh, catchphrase. <laughs> but no, I, do, I do think um, it's like Amy was saying, and, and I, was, I was sort of trying to articulate earlier, these peripheral bits, these, you know, these niches, these quaint areas like women's studies or social history. I mean, social history is the history of society. It should be at the very heart of what we do. But they've always been kept at the edges. And still, you know, you walk into a bookshop and the history shelves will be stacked with biographies of great war leaders or biographies of kings. We've got to change slowly. It's still changing public tastes slowly as well. You know, we still get excited 
incited by Henry VIII and his six wives, we still you know, revert back to thinking about war. But there are so many other ways to think about the past and engage with it. And I think finding ourselves in the past can imp- empower us now and empower us to see our, our present and our future differently. That's a big claim, but that's what I think it can do. Yes, it's all about reframing, isn't it, really? Mm. So a question for Amy then. If we know this different version of history told through the lens of women from the past, can that help us understand our present better? Can we understand our past better as a a result as well? Well, yeah, obviously, absolutely. I think if children are taught about women's achievements on the past, it helps them to know that women, girls can achieve absolutely anything today. I just think gender shouldn't define accomplishment or ambition. And so by making women's histories and stories from the past the norm, like equally represented, I think it will create a richer sort of more equal today. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if I didn't think that there was a reason for it now. Historians are sort of mouthpieces of the past, but they're as much representatives of of the present. And it's our responsibility as people who work with the past, with history, to see what impact our, our words, our texts, our ideas have in the present day. And I see it as incredibly empowering to be finding these inspiring, not just individuals, but inspiring societies of the past, you know, men and women in these societies. And and not just being given a version of history that, oh, the past is all dark and ignorant and superstitious, but seeing in it the richness, the diversity of humanity and, and the range of human achievements. That is inspiring. And that is why it's worth engaging with it. So when people now as a result of listening to this podcast, are perhaps planning their next holiday or a weekend away if they may want to go to Whitby or Southwest Wiltshire to Watercastle or they'll go to Bolsover Castle in Derbyshire or Kenwood in North London. What should they think about as they're visiting all these different English heritage sites, having listened to this discussion in terms of women's history? Well, I would just say simply that women from the past have always had a significant impact upon culture and society. And that just because it isn't always discussed doesn't mean they weren't there. And that is just as a result, so important to ensure that their stories are represented in history and heritage. And that I think I just want people to think that women's achievements aren't exceptions. They are, they were very prevalent. And just because we don't know about it now, you know, it doesn't mean they didn't happen. I think I'm not being very articulate there. I think, Yanina, you can have a better go at it. (laughs) Can we keep finding new stories to tell where perhaps we thought they were once lost when it comes to women's history? Oh, completely. I think there's never a more exciting time to discover it. I mean, archaeologists now are able to see remains from space, you know, without even having to pick up a trowel. And just the development in DNA has meant that individuals we previously thought were one sex are turning out to be another and that's telling a whole new range of stories yeah i mean it's there's not a day goes by where my inbox isn't pinging with something exciting that's happening in this area so it's super important and i think the reason that you should go to these places i'm a true believer in the sort of echoes of time in a landscape in a, in a place and when you stand somewhere like the cliffs of whitby or when you walk through a stately home you are following in footsteps of many thousands of people that have gone before you and if you can just ease into that feeling and visualize the steps of those people we tend to have quite a condescending view of people of the past that we are a superior and improved version of them but we're not and touching their footprints 
being where they are, that can really open up just the way that you interact with the world around you, the way you see a village differently, or you see a field or a landscape or a woodland differently. They all have their histories and, and they're within you know, touching distance. Yes. So open up your mind, open up your mind to bending the past, I suppose, and bringing it into your present. And you can write new histories with yeah. our history. Everybody has the resources now. I mean, this is one of the plus sides, I guess, if there were any to the pandemic, was that all these archives, these collections, these texts, they were made available online. And people are looking into their own genealogical history. They're having their DNA is done. They're looking back through family records. It's within our power, every one of us, to find the bits of history that fascinate us and pour our passions into it. Because, you know, I think as we've been saying throughout this, to understand where we've come from allows us to understand where we are better and, and perhaps where we're going. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we dive into the intriguing story of a whale vertebra found at Lanson Castle in Cornwall. The whalebone is just one of those objects that we recovered. It's possibly the strangest one, which is why we chose to incorporate it into the museum displays when we redid them last year. Thanks for listening. See you next time.